0: All adaptation occurs during the rest after training. All the all the things that solidified those training gains, all of that happens during the subsequent rest, and the training session itself is basically just a thing that initiates that. This is true for skill work as well. Ready. But then we also have the experience of going back the next day or the day after that, and then the trick doesn't work anymore. Super common. So
1: what happened? All right, welcome back to season two of Cirque Sci. I didn't really give y'all a heads up that there was going to be a brief hiatus, but it turns out that living in New York just makes people busier than living in a small mountain town in Arizona. Before we get started, here's a quick plug for something. I think is exciting that's coming up. If you've ever wanted to teach aerial straps, but haven't been able to afford the travel costs associated with attending an in-person teacher training, or don't yet feel comfortable attending due to the pandemic, in August, I'll be offering a fully online 40 plus hour aerial straps level one teacher training. All you need is access to a studio each week for the asynchronous practice time and solid internet for the live Zoom lecture and discussion section. There's still time to get the early bird application in. And for anyone listening to Cirque if you include a note in the application that says, I listen to Cirque si. The early bird deadline is extended until June 14th. Anyway, now let's get back to the episode. I couldn't choose between many of the insightful quotes by Henry, so I opted to include two of them. Thank you, Henry, for joining me on Cirque si. I've been Sorry. like really admiring all of the content and thoughts going into your social media posts and think it's really important for people to see and read and hopefully expand their minds and opinions on what makes sensible training and coaching. So with that said, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background?
0: Yeah, sure. And uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It's it's great to be here. I've also enjoyed the previous episodes that I have listened to. So it's very cool to be here. About me, I'm uh, currently living in Finland and I'm a sports science nerd and a coach mostly at the moment. My background with uh, movement related stuff uh, basically started when I was about 20 I haven't really moved before that and then by happy accident I found an introductory introductory course to parkour and then I kind of that took me with it and a few years after that I found a random aerial silks weekend class or a weekend course, and then attended that, and then stuff just kept expanding. And because I started with uh, no background whatsoever, as a, uh, and then I got into it pretty deeply. And uh, yeah, you can probably guess where this is going. The amount of training went from zero to, yeah, all the kind time. Of exploded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the reasons I got into aerial was that uh, the sh- all the parkour stuff had given me some overuse injuries that relate to jumping, so mm-hmm. I had to do something for the upper body. So yeah, yeah. No need to jump there. Yeah. But anyway, all this, uh, all this, uh, getting really into all these different uh, physical skill disciplines and then having some problems with uh, overuse injuries and recurring pains. I kind of felt that I need to know more about uh, how training works and then I ended up studying biology of physical activity which is uh, basically the nerdiest thing you can study that has to do with movement. For those who don't know, uh, biology of physical activity uh, basically has uh, three things that you can major in. It's the exercise physiology is one. Those are basically molecular biologists that study things that have done some exercise related things. Uh, and then we have biomechanics that in Our city, they mostly study uh, different neural adaptations and the nervous system. And then there's the science of sport coaching and fitness testing, which basically takes the findings from the other two nerdy disciplines and then designs training interventions and tests them and tries to take it to a slightly more
1: practical place.
0: But yeah, I went there and, to study that.
1: And... and would you say that the third has kind of been your focus? the Taking those two kind of more minute and nuanced uh, areas and translating that to practical things that aerialists, circus artists, parkour athletes can use?
0: Yeah, yeah. Definitely. And, and of those three majors, that is mine. My major is science of sport coaching and fitness testing. Because the other two, basically, therefore those who want to do science and stay in the lab. I kind of like that I know how it works and I know my way around a lab a little bit. I like to have that knowledge, but I don't want to do that. That is... Yeah, I admire those who want to do it, but uh, lab, I
1: don't. Yeah, lab work is so slow. I've worked in a lab a few different times, and every time beforehand, I'm like, oh, this is going to be really exciting, and the work that they're doing is awesome. And then I get in the lab, and I start doing the work as you know an assistant or whatever, and I'm like, oh man, there's a reason why I don't spend all my days in the lab. Yeah. So within that, it's, you know, you've got a really good perspective on what current evidence and research bears out that makes sense to put into practice and... I'm sure, you know, especially with the recent new year, you've seen all sorts of different influencers on the Internet being like, oh, well, if you do these four things or if you try this surefire method, you'll get X, Y, Z result. And some of that might be based in science and some not. So from a perspective of trying to combat misinformation or disinformation around circus and aerial and parkour training, are there kind of common ideas or traditions that you see that you're like, this this just doesn't make any sense based on what we know about how the m- molecular biology of muscles works or how people reinforce neuronal firing, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, yeah.
0: I think the most harmful and the most prevalent probably is the has to do with the amount of training the kind of more is more mentality and and all the also the tendency to to react to injuries or overuse problems by just adding more stuff it's like the harder you train the harder you have to do all these other things. So you got to stretch and roll and whatever. And like 40 so, different
1: prehab exercises. And- yeah,
0: all the prehab things and yeah, include this in your warm up and then add that into your cool down. And yeah, do this on the, on a rest day. And yeah, yeah, that's the main thing. And also the the glorification of training volumes and all that—basically, the more is more mentality—and also, which I understand, I completely kind of get it, but the um, the pride people take in injuries or being in pain or. Mm the wrong kind of warrior mentality which like a- basically i think it it might be rooted in the culture that uh, glorifies these huge amounts of training and the idea that if something doesn't work you just gotta train more and if you're tired that's just an excuse so you're just yeah lazy and should do more yeah
1: mm-hmm. so so with that in mind of, okay we don't always even with overuse injuries and even with uh, pain in training, we don't necessarily need to add more different exercises into our warm-up or cool-down. Prehab, etc. What are what are some strategies or ways of thinking about overuse injuries or just training in general that you think could have positive impacts on discomfort or pain in training and or overuse injuries that aren't just you know more is more let's add another drill let's add another stabilization exercise that type of thing. And I mean I think that's a some, big question.
0: Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, I'm going to start with. Uh some knowledge that might help is uh, understanding the fact that all adaptation occurs during the rest after training all the all the things that solidified those training gains all of that happens during the subsequent rest and the training session itself is basically just a thing that initiates that and the fact that this is true for skill work as well uh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Because this is uh, this is very kind of kind of counterintuitive because people have this experience of something just clicking and things working out and all these light bulb moments where probably new connections are formed and the thing works. But even if the connection might be formed during the session. It's formed in a very squishy, non-permanent way, and what makes it permanent? What basically, for the nerds nerds out there, updates those receptors on the post-synaptic? Yeah. What, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That Occurs during deep sleep, mostly. Uh, something occurs during the next few hours after training, but the most important, the most solidifying thing, occurs during deep sleeps, and and also the a brain kind of, while it solidifies the connection during sleep, it also, I think this might be a weird way of saying it, but it basically runs simulations of what you have done, so it basically trains itself it's, while so it's solidifying that.
1: Is it like so, the idea that, okay, you, you did, let's say I did um, a reverse flare to back balance on straps during my training session, I, and I'm like, oh, this started working all of a sudden, and that's really exciting for the person who did it. And obviously that success during the training session doesn't mean that it's a skill in the bag. But afterwards, particularly in deep sleep, the brain is essentially like running through just like multiple repeats of the same general pathway or the exact same like embodied experience. And then the next time you do it, how does that translate, you know, into greater success in the movement?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh... One of the things that is happening oh this might go very deep
1: you're allowed to go as, as deep as you feel yeah. like you have time and brain space for
0: yeah that's one of the things that happens but then we also have the experience of going back the next day or the day after that and then the trick doesn't work anymore super common so what happened if we have run all those simulations and that uh, has to do with the fact that um, basically you could say that the lightning does strike the same spot many times but it never takes the same route and, uh, and the nervous system is very very complicated weird complex system of weird complex systems so the next time you're trying to do the move uh, you have changed many things of your nervous system have changed many things in your muscles have changed The state is nowhere near the same, and therefore what you need to uh, perform a seemingly similar thing to what you have done previously is not the same. It's a slightly different thing, and then you have to find the variation for that state, so it's not the same, and by doing more variations, you're... Body basically gets better at uh, reading all the information about movement and yourself and the space around you and then making uh, appropriate decisions based on that information and then integrating the motor and sensory parts. So, the reason why it doesn't work is because you don't have that variation the next day. You don't have the variation for that state you're in.
1: So, essentially, the first time we do a thing, our first few times in a training session or in an entire training session, the context of our muscles, of our proprioception, of our Golgi tendon units, all of those different things is slightly different from the next time we try the same skill. And so our body and our brain has to learn to get to the same endpoint with a slightly different context using, like you said, a different variation. Is that right? Yes.
0: Yeah. Oh, basically, okay. it's kind of, you can think of it like, Your brain is not building uh, narrow, strong highways. It's more like paving a way in a dense forest. It kind of creates multiple paths. And at different circumstances, a different path is more optimal to the same result. And the more you have those paths, those seemingly similar paths, the more you're able to adapt to different circumstances.
1: Mm -hmm. And so... So knowing what we just discussed, how was kind of like multiple paths or, um, you know, small roads or trails to get to the same place. What can we do in our own training to support the development of those paths and have a broader uh, success rate in different contexts and states that we are going to have as we train? This actually leads us to
0: a way to reduce total training load. So uh, we're basically running with the first question as well. But uh, one thing about skill retention, it's weird that this has not been studied very much in the context of motor learning. It's been studied a little bit, but... um, it seems that some adaptations are quite permanent and it has more to do with how the skill has been trained than what the skill is. Uh, it, it also has a, a little bit to do with what the skill is like. Uh, for example, um, these kind of continuous skills like running or walking or cycling or or then these kind of problem-solving skills are uh, they are better retained they decay less than these kind of closed loop skills like I think the example from the study was uh, Pre-flight check, which is kind of closed-loop thing. uh, You repeat the same stuff, and yeah, and and those are very easily forgotten uh, compared to this other thing. But um, one thing that seems to be also from also a very interesting finding from studying language, it seems that uh, time isn't the factor when it comes to forgetting a language you have learned. So uh, the amount of time it has taken or the the length of the break is not very important. But what is important is motivation and how uh, deeply or intrinsically the language has been learned. So, for example, if you have to take a mandatory course on some language that you don't really care about it doesn't really matter after the course in a month you have forgotten it and you don't remember it after a year but if you live in a foreign country and have to basically be surrounded by that and and you are very motivated to learn then it doesn't decay that much and the length of the break does very little to the skill mm-hmm. which is yeah but all this basically And this is also the hypothesis of my thesis, which is gonna study the retention of a hand balancing skill during a training break. Uh, Mm. Is that if the skill is learned in a very implicit way, and if it has been done with enough variation, then it is maintained As long as the physical prerequisites are maintained as well. This is basically to say that, for example, riding a bike is a skill that you don't need to learn every year. And the idea is that what if the thing that makes bike riding such an easily retained skill is the way we approach it? Because we do it in different circumstances. We do it with different kinds of equipment. And our focus is always somewhere else. We have this kind of secondary task while we do it. So we're kind of allowing the brain to process all these different variations. So we're paying attention to traffic or we're talking with a friend or... Hopefully not texting, but whatever. So, so it's 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 the way that we automatically do variations and do it in very different circumstances, and we basically teach our body a way to solve the problem instead of a way to repeat a pattern
1: Mm -hmm. with your with your thesis uh, you know will people be practicing this handstand skill while singing or while having like conversation or solving math problems (laughs) i know these are kind of joke but but the idea is that when our focus is not directly on kind of repeating the pattern like you said we're more likely to increase our skill retention because it's almost an unconscious learning process rather than like, if I do this, then this, then this, it'll work. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, We're going to be next weekend.
0: We're going to be filming the follow along training videos for the study. We're going to be doing this as well. And we're probably going to do a lot of variation and some secondary tasks. The singing one was a good idea, but, but yeah, we're going to be spending a lot of time. They're going to be spending quite much time on their hands doing different things and yeah let's see what we come up with the singing was a good idea might include that
1: i only thought of that because when i was uh first working on arm roll-ups in the air i decided one day to try to sing while doing it and ah, nice it's, i mean i don't think i'll ever lose the ability to do that skill unless i get really old and injured like you said the physical prerequisites have to be there
0: yeah and that actually uh um, strength power and speed are the things that are they decay if you don't use it there they use it or lose it kind of applies but what people don't get is that the amount needed to maintain is usually surprisingly low. It's way lower than what it takes to properly progress. So, yeah, as long as you maintain the strength thing, you probably won't lose the singing roll-ups.
1: Yes. So, with the idea that for maintenance, we don't need as much frequency or maybe even as much volume, you know, in, in your work as a coach, you design a lot of programs. And so, I think... Mm-hmm there's a question of, well, how do we design or how does someone train for themselves um, in such a way where they can meet the demands of a uh, complex motor skill acquisition that has power requirements and strength requirements in such a way that we're not increasing risk of overtraining and also are still progressing in the areas that we would like to. And, and, and again, this is going to be really vague without specific skills and a person and all of that, but I think there are probably some ideas that could help.
0: I think the general idea is that um, while the skill or the discipline might demand many different physical attributes, you shouldn't train all of them at the same time. Instead, you should pick one or two and then focus on those. Build a progressive kind of thing that runs on the background with those and then let all else be in maintenance mode. And the way you should probably build that is... uh, if I were to picture this kind of well training as a as a pyramid, where you first build a foundation and then you add fancier stuff and then you add the top, basically the foundation is created by structural elements like like how well your connective tissue can handle different loads or uh, how the quality and uh, and function of the muscle mass or the neural tissue can take all that and and some neural adaptations are also structural like how fast can the signal travel during the spinal cord or yeah the amount of myelin and on top of that you have the structural layer the connective tissue and muscles and these neural roots that can withstand all that on top of that you can add the neural layer the the efficiency or smoothness of the skill or the super maximal strength or or power or speed or stuff like that and if your discipline needs loads of uh, tolerance to fatigue all this uh, yeah like five to ten minute aerial stuff Mm -hmm. then On top of it is the chemical layer that has to do with the metabolism of the muscles themselves mostly. So how well they tolerate fatigue. And if you think about what should be the one or two main focuses for whatever you're doing, maybe start from the bottom. Yeah. So this kind of the type of strength or the type of wide ranges of motion strength thing that creates the kind of structures that can tolerate what you want to do with them and then add on maybe a few weeks after that start adding the neural stuff so take more power and more strength out of them and if at some point you need to be very good at the kind of at maintaining this kind of sub maximal effort level for a long, long time, then focus on that. But but that can be maximized in like a couple of months or, yeah, or something. So so you, you shouldn't probably do that all year. So just before when you need it the most.
1: So starting with connective tissue strength, range of motion, and just general quality of muscular output as, as the base layer, and, and then progressing to areas where there's a more complex motor skill that might involve some dynamic power output, and then more closer to the top of the pyramid would be building tolerance to consistent work output so building endurance for your act you don't have to have endurance the whole year round unless you're performing the whole year round and you don't necessarily need to train endurance the whole year round unless that's your only goal is i think i think some people have this idea of okay well i just worked for four weeks or six weeks or however long on these skills and you know um now doing, I don't know, uh, 20 inversions or 10 inversions or skin the cats or whatever is is pretty hard from a just like fatigue perspective. How how worried do those people need to be? I mean, unless they have an act coming up soon it's something that like you can get back to close to maximal levels as you said pretty quickly
0: yeah they don't need to be too worried because the the strength levels they come back pretty quickly some of the adaptations are kind of without nerding too deeply training strength stuff basically creates new factories for for the maintenance and building of all the tissues around our muscles. And when you have a training break, then all the infra and all the factories are still there. The, the workers have just been laid off Mm. and when you resume training, the people get back there and then you regain the level pretty quickly compared to what it first took you to get there. So you don't need to be too worried. Just make sure that once you start training the skill, you do enough variation to make it make it more permanent, because some neural adaptations with the skill are quite permanent mm-hmm. Cause that that basically because the neural adaptation defies the logic of everything else basically in the in the body where where most of the things work like you push some energy into it and it is maintained. And if you stop pushing energy into it, you kind of lose it. But, but the, the thing that deep sleep does to a neural connection, it uh, updates the receptors so that it would take some input to break it instead of it taking input to maintain it. So it kind of reverses the logic. So it is there. So if you train the skill to an implicit level and if you do enough variations and if you make it so that you can do it in a different circumstances and from a different setup and uh, with different levels of fatigue, it will probably be relatively permanent and the strength will come back.
1: So kind of following up on the n- nerdiness and, and totally tell me if this is the wrong idea. But if I have a, a skill that I'm working on that's not pure strength and how you know people define what a skill is versus a strength skill in the circus and world is sometimes different. Yeah. But um, let's say I'm working on top switches from meat hook to flag or something like that. Is the idea to almost or is an idea to almost take kind of um, a daily undulating periodization approach. Not that you're training it daily, but that, you know, maybe one day you're training it near to the beginning of your training session. Um, You're a little bit more well-rested. You're doing it with a faster spin to assist in the transition. Mm -hmm. Then two days later, you would train it maybe in the middle with a pretty slow spin, maybe slightly higher reps or volume, and then two days later, you would do it at the end of your training session or near the end, um, and you would train it. You know, with try to train it without any spin. So is that kind of one way to apply this variation in context and state? Yes,
0: that is one way, and that is a very a very good way. If you are not a complete beginner with that particular skill, mm-hmm. so so the further along you are, the smarter that becomes. Or, or if the if the skill is very new to you, then you should probably prioritize uh, variations that are light and easy-ish to you, so that you can actually play around with it and do variations. And then you should probably do most of them well rested. But as you progress further, then you should definitely, that is very smart, what you just said about that. That's a very good way to do it.
1: Cool, great. So for someone who's a little bit more beginner, you know, they might work on, instead of the one-arm version, two-arm versions, or even like in a hammock or a sling, practicing the same pathway, and more of their training time for a newer, harder skill would be at the earlier end of their training session, rather than, um, let's say, they do a bunch of training that's fatiguing and then doing this hard new thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And this also uh, brings us to another point about how to choose the variations for the skill and what to go for in the bigger picture of the training, is that in order to learn a thing, you gotta do variations. You gotta be able to try it. Yes, so it should be relatively light in terms of your maximal strength levels. Cause if, if, if it's very much, if it's your complete total one rep max that you can do on a good day, then you have one try on a good day. But if it's lighter, you get more freedom with it. And it's also uh, more safe to you. It's not that close to anything dangerous. So, so this brings us to two points. So when you're beginning with a skill, yeah. So choose variations that are light for that particular, yeah, for you or that student. So, yeah. And in a larger scale. You might want to become so strong that most of the skill work isn't close to your maximal capabilities. It becomes so much lighter when, when you have a connective tissue and musculature and nervous system that can take so much more than it takes. It's, it's not that much. It's, it's safer and it's way more fun also probably.
1: When you're not like every single rep is exhausting and fatiguing and yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and you don't have to hope that it's a good day uh, or you don't have to worry about how tired you are. Cause if, if it's like you can do this when you're fresh, then you better be fresh.
1: Always. <laughs> yeah. Always. Yeah. When yeah. you do that. That, that makes uh, a lot of sense. And I think it, at least to me it seems to provide um it illuminates kind of the difference between how you would train a dynamic skill and how you would train for the gross motor strength um that might be associated with it you want like you were saying you want to be fresh for the skill that's hard you want to have um freedom for variation and for a strength skill it's not the opposite, but it doesn't hold true in the same way. Like, you can train closer to failure, not necessarily to failure every time, but it doesn't have to be, oh, I have to be fresh, or it doesn't have to be as precise. So is that, does that, what do you think?
0: Yeah, yeah. In terms of adaptations, to kind of draw the difference between these, it's uh, It's good to, uh, to understand that um, learning a skill very well takes... Uh, loads of repetition without repetition and, and lots of variations. You got to do it a lot. And uh, and the way you can do it if, if you well you can do it more if you pick variations that are not close to your max levels. But also because the body is pretty lazy uh, the strength thing itself um, It requires you to work closer to your max effort levels because if you don't give your body a signal that it needs to be stronger in that, then it doesn't become stronger in that. It basically wants to save energy. So... So skill work, frequency is quite important. It's good if you do little, but very often. But with strength, you need to go a bit harder. Don't need to go to failure, but need to be closer to failure than with skill work. In order for it to work. And with strength, it's also very useful to know that uh, especially... For the structural adaptations, the most important thing is that the weekly volume is adequate and it consists of heavy enough stuff. But it doesn't really matter that much how frequently you train it. Whereas with the skill thing, it might matter if, yeah. By doing four sessions of half hour is better than doing one session of two hours. Frequency matters, but it's not so much the case in strength, as long as we're talking about structural adaptations and it doesn't have a huge skill element.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. So it's if I'm programming for someone, they don't really need to work on you know um, max weight pull-ups or one-arm pull-up drills more than once a week, but if those drills are to build strength for switches or something like that, those switches you'd want to practice, like you said, a few times at a lower intensity or volume spread out over the course of the week. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes total sense to me. and. Also, it's nice because then you don't have to train strength work all the time.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. Uh,
1: uh, and
0: if you have a kind of season or situation where your main priority is skill work, but you would also want to progress in strength, then you can structure your week by by putting the skill sessions where you're the most fresh and then adding the strength sessions uh at the places that are left and then assure that you got a rest day after all the heavier days.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, it's it's also you don't have to do strength every day. Just do it once or maybe twice a week and it'll be probably very good.
1: Do you do you think of range of motion training as strength work or as something else because there are you know there's all sorts of different ways you can train your range of motion or flexibility um and i think there's definitely debate and and potentially reasonably so about whether you know higher frequency lower intensity or lower frequency higher intensity and part of it depends on how you're doing it but yeah what's your what are your perspective on that and where that comes into this like strength skill continuum
0: Uh, It depends on what adaptations we are looking for. And if we are looking for the ones that really make the muscles more resilient at end ranges in a situation where they have to work there. So for example, the Van Damme split or the Jujimufu thing between the chairs. Yeah, the muscles need to be able to work. And that one becomes a strength thing. So uh, go relatively heavy or go heavier than you would with the skill thing, and assure that you have a rest day after the heaviest session. And maybe go twice a week to do the heavy thing, mm-hmm. and then. If those are not the adaptations we're looking for, if we're looking at something else, like how well the muscles can... For example, doing the splits in a handstand or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it's the opposing muscle is trying to work at a super short state while the muscles that are elongated are trying to relax. That has a little bit more skill elements than strength elements. And for that... I would pick the skill way of doing it. So variations, more frequency, less intensity. Yeah, so it depends that, on the adaptations that we're looking for.
1: That makes sense to me. And uh, I think it, it also reinforces the idea that there isn't really one way to train range of motion adaptations and for probably a lot of circus people it would be beneficial to use multiple ways since you do want to have resilience and range under load in a lot of instances but you also want to have the skill to put yourself in that range without extra load putting you there
0: yeah with the mobility, um, with mobility, it might be useful. Well, basically, you can think of this for all training, but it will be especially useful for mobility to think of training as a, a, a basically a trust exercise with your own body, because it's uh, constantly. Uh, gathering huge amounts of information from inside itself and from the surroundings. And it reacts to that in a way that tries to keep itself safe. And if you're going for ranges that you have never used, it doesn't let you go there because it doesn't know that there's a thing there. It hasn't drawn the map that far. And... So it's about the perceived threat, how much threat your body is perceiving. And you can affect this by basically showing it that, yeah, I'm in control here. I can produce force here. I can move in different ways in these ranges and it's perfectly fine. Or or then you can make the situation safer for you in some other way, like convincing that, yeah, I can breathe very deeply here. I can breathe and relax and it's all good and and, and stuff like that. Or or you can make it this is going to go in a different direction. Because the perceived threat, it's a very many things affect it. Like how you're feeling about that current situation. So might want to make the training session itself kind of like, uh, physically and psychologically safe, like, you don't have to worry too much about being judged or anything, well, whatever, that's not my core expertise, but but anyway, the perceived threat is about so many things, and it's a very situation-dependent thing, and you can Work on it in many ways, and and the constant trust exercise with your body only works if you if you're you know worthy of that trust. So, so convince it that things are safe. Take your time, let it adapt, and don't take it to places that
1: aren't safe. Very sensible advice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and it uh, I think it gets again into the idea that. What is enabling our bodies to do range of motion work, skill work, et cetera, is, like you were saying earlier, it's the physical adaptations, but it's also the neurological signals to the different like proprioceptive units in the joints that are being asked to move. And if we're in a stressed-out place or if we're... um. I don't know, maybe for some people training with like screaming death metal would not make them feel safe. Then maybe that's not the, the music to listen to for flexibility, range of motion work. For some people, they're probably like, oh, it's fine. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, for me, it's the best.
1: Do you do you have a recommendation for for people who are, you know, they have multiple goals and so they're going to have different training blocks working on these different goals. Is there a recommended length of time that makes sense, both from like a physical perspective, but also to kind of negotiate and navigate the perceived rate of growth or or perceived rate of gains. Because I think, you know, we don't always see the gains that are being made. And that for humans can be really hard. We're like, I'm working so hard on this thing. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm putting effort in more. It's hard. Why isn't there progress? And so I think sometimes... structure training not because of what works for the the body in terms of acquisition but in terms of what you know can work with someone's brain and their psyche
0: yeah so how long should you stick with something to see if it works yeah generally neural adaptations are slightly faster than some structural adaptations so in a in a scale thing, I'd say that maybe a month or two might be the kind of like three to nine weeks or something. If it doesn't work during that, then probably might want to change something. But But during the first or the second or maybe the third week, you can't really say that much. And then at the other end, if you are building, for example, if you are building stronger tendons or rehabbing from an overused tendon injury, then uh, those kind of connective tissues take a longer amount of time. It, it Stick with it at two or three months or maybe. If two or three months feel like it's starting to work, keep at it because it might take longer. But if you don't see anything during two months or so, then change the change the way you're doing it and then everything else is basically in between those so so for most strength things for most things to be able to see very clear changes takes maybe two or three months but it takes about a month give or take to see if it works if it's worth doing Mm-hmm. so uh after what I... two or three weeks you might know if it's worth going that, that way but during the second or third month you're gonna see big changes for strength for strength or it... endurance or power or speed
1: so so in general it sounds like people should wait at least three weeks before yeah judging whether or not the thing that they're doing is working whether it's skill or strength and then if it's strength you're probably not going to see the most sizable adaptation until you know eight eight to twelve weeks in yeah unless
0: you're a beginner yeah and then Then you might get the beginner gains
1: yeah, yeah cool yeah i think it's Because we have those light bulb moments where something clicks and we're like, oh, I suddenly made progress and it happened within a session. And that was so fast. It's sometimes hard to to wrap your mind around the idea that, oh, sometimes you're not going to see any noticeable improvement for three whole weeks, which we have short attention spans are an impatient species. So we have to just find ways to navigate some of those elements with. Exercise selection for aerial and circus more focused on gross strength, not so much um, the skill specific things. When do you think? people should choose between kind of a symmetrical bilateral skill versus an asymmetrical or um, unilateral drill, not skill uh, like exercise choice. So something that I'm a big fan of that you talk about often is, you know, you're doing deadlifts mm. with one leg staggered slightly back and there's obviously like single leg deadlifts and stuff. Um, and that same idea could be taken to pull-ups or push-ups when how do we how do we pick
0: yeah i think this is a funny dogmatic thing that people in a basic gym like to do symmetrical things that operate in the sagittal plane here Uh, and basically uh, most people have asked this uh, by phrasing it like, how many unilateral exercises should you implement in a training program? I think much better question is, what's the minimum amount of bilateral stuff you should do? Or do you have a reason to do something bilaterally? If you do, then do something like that. But if you don't, Nothing in life is symmetrical. And if you're doing anything where you're standing on your own feet or moving, running, jumping, then it's, uh, well, yeah, standing backflips are bilateral and rebounding is bilateral. But everything else is unilateral. You need to be able to run and jump in that way. And also with aerial, we don't have these symmetrical things where the arms move side by side. We have something bilateral, but mostly, yeah, I prefer. I recommend people do more unilateral work or more asymmetrical work, mostly because the way your whole body has to create support or organize itself to be able to produce force there, it's very useful, and the transfer to many many things is is very great. But also, if you start thinking about unilateral variations or or asymmetrical variations, that also gives you a greater amount of variation within the strength stuff. So you're also becoming more skilled in producing force in different directions. So if you have some weird situation where you need to support yourself, your whole body weight in some weird situation you're more ready for it because you have done unilateral stuff in different directions compared to the situation where you only do the bilateral sagittal plane uh, bench pressing or strict pressing or two-arm pull-ups yeah yeah symmetry is overrated
1: symmetry is overrated i think one one area where, you know, it might be more, there might be more of a reason for bilateral movement is, I think, like we've kind of talked about with people who are more beginner um, and where yeah, yeah. maybe you wanna be able to increase the load Yes. without having balance or something else be the limiting factor. Yes, yes.
0: If what you are trying to develop is a kind of sport-specific or, or something that is specific to that discipline, then it's very rarely symmetrical. But if what you are trying to teach is the way to handle great loads, then the symmetrical way allows you to get greater loads. So, for example, if a partner agrobase... Is wanting to get the core that can withstand anything. Then you need symmetrical squats and deadlifts, because that allows you to handle greatest loads, and that pre- prepares you better for the five man high, where you are feet probably staggered. But but yeah. it's
1: just so much load. Yeah. 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 That makes that makes a ton of sense. Um, and I. Yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking about like, yeah. okay, cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I'm also this is, this is a fun point because uh, when new people come to me with some kind of goals and I'm gonna be doing the the testing in the beginning and the point of testing is to get me the information that I need to make the best decisions with the programming and I usually end up testing bilateral basic strength moves because what i need to see is their ability to handle great loads or the ability to handle loads that are big for them and i need to see how they do with that situation but then i designed the program and it's not gonna have very much bilateral stuff unless they have goals in those bilateral things so that's one place where I, I test the bilateral stuff because this is the information that I need and this is the attribute that's important there but then I don't train them that much
1: yeah it's it's more about seeing what the different tissues and structures can handle less about the skills in question unless the skill in question is just handling lots of load like in a five high, as you said. yeah, well. This has been super awesome. Um, do you you do a lot of coaching? Do you want to talk about any upcoming coaching offerings that you have uh, for for folks who might be interested?
0: Well, well, I'm just gonna say that one easy way to reach me is by Instagram. So send me a message. Uh, mm-hmm. At the moment, the individualized coaching that I do is. Pretty close to max capacity. I should probably do something less individualized so that more people could get at least some benefits.
1: That's the conundrum yeah. that always happens. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But send me a message. I'm close to max capacity, but not quite there. So, yeah.
1: cool. It's Henry. Dot Hanninen, and I'll spell that. Yes. It's H A N N I N E N. How do you pronounce that? So I know next time.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's pronounced Hanninen. Hanninen. In 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 Finland, the it's the a with dots in finland but yeah
1: it's kind of just dragged out a little bit um, well yeah seriously thank you so so much uh very cool. cool and thank you for having
0: me it was very nice talking with you
1: all right that was it for the first episode of the second season of cirque sai hope you enjoyed it there will be a few more episodes coming out over the course of this summer and as usual if you want to support the podcast. Please like, rate, and subscribe anywhere you can listen to podcasts. And if you want to support it even more, you can check out my Patreon at Cirquecause after the patreon.com business. Either way, have a great day, train smart, be safe.